You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, I'm Rebecca Rees. I'm a partner at Trowers and Hamlins and I head up the public procurement team here. We have a large number of procurement experts here at Trowers and we've all been combing through and immersing ourselves in the recently published green paper from the Cabinet Office. This green paper is on post-Brexit procurement reform and it's called Transforming Public Procurement. And we've got lots of interesting questions, not only from our ranks, but uh, from our client base as well. And uh, our clients comprise both public sector procurers and private sector bidders. So they're quite wide ranging. And who better to chat to today than Tracy Pritchard? Uh, Tracy's senior policy advisor at the Cabinet Office's International Reform Team. Um, Tracy's been part of the team which has been responsible for writing the proposals included in the Green Paper and who will also be responsible for taking them forward into legislation. So welcome, Tracy, and thanks for taking time out of your busy consultation timetable uh, to chat to me today. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, It's good to talk to you, as always. Um, I suspect we won't quite reach the heights of procurement geekery that we normally do when we talk, but let's see how how high we can get today. (laughs) Let's try. Well, should we we dive straight into the questions? And um, they're a mixture of sort of things that have been taxing me, but also uh, from our clients as well. So, okay, let's start with one out of the traps. Um, Now that we're out of the common market and the European Union, um, what was the design behind the underpinning procurement principles in the the first chapter of the Green Paper? So, well, the procurement principles, really, the aim of them is to guide contracting authorities when they're designing processes, almost like a mental checklist, I suppose, um, and to help review bodies when interpreting the legislation. So the objectives that we've set out in the Green Paper, so I think that's value for money, public good and integrity, they reflect the objectives we want to achieve in the UK. We're trying, well, not trying not to, but we don't want to replicate those set out in the EU directives. Those were primarily established to open up markets and facilitate cross-border trade. And we want to focus on what we want to achieve in the UK, which is why they're different. As well as these overarching principles, we've also got principles-based rules, which cover things like transparency, non-discrimination and fair treatment as well. It's interesting you pick up on the principle-based rules because um, one of the um, absences in the Green Paper is proportionality. W- was any discussions held on, um, around inclusion of proportionality or do you think that that's kind of embedded um, sufficiently in English law to go forward into the procurement uh, reforms? Yeah, so we've had lots of conversations about proportionality or efficiency in the process as well and the at the moment, the assumption is that's going to be baked more into the rules as they as they are set out in the regulation rather than them being an overarching principle. And actually, that's a good point. And um, uh, I mean, in the Green Paper, clearly you haven't been able to mention everything <laughs> that's currently in the public contract regulations or, or, or in the EU directives. Um, are, are kind of absences and omissions because you you like them and they'll be going forward into the the rules or or is it because um you don't like them and they'll be omitted going forwards well we are starting with a blank sheet of paper here in designing a new set of regulations but i think it we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. and if there are things that work then it would not make sense 
to do away with them just because they came from the directors in the first place. So I think generally where things are not included in the green paper, it's because they are not going to be changed. And um, I mean, I'm I'm looking at remedies um, and the review system is one of mine and ineffectiveness is one of those, the standstill period. They're not things that we're really planning on changing a huge amount apart from um, where that butts up against the new transparency provisions. So we haven't drawn it out in a huge amount in the green paper because, as you say, we can't put everything in there and it would be a waste of waste of space to set out things that we aren't really going to do that much with. Um, I think there are some things that we are looking at changing that weren't really um, determined to be big enough to put in the green paper for proposals. So things like in Regulation 72, um, we want to make it clear that that also covers in reductions in scope as well as increases in scope. And I think that's kind of implicit in the directives, but it's not set out that clearly. So we want to bring that clarity into the rules, but it's not worth kind of consulting on that and having a conversation around it because it's it's not a very big it's not a very big change. I think that that will create some comfort amongst some clients who obviously haven't seen the TECAL exemption in the green paper. So I think that they'll take comfort from the fact that just because it's out, it doesn't mean that it's not going to reappear. Yeah, and that was one I was thinking of raising. So the TECAL Hamburg um, article, um, Regulation 12 type bit, we are looking at that, but we weren't planning on changing it significantly enough to put it in the green paper. But what we want to do is make it clearer, make the boundaries of, of it clearer, but not actually no, changing how it works. No. Now, something that is going to be completely new, and I th- I don't know if it is in our kind of landscape or vocabulary already, uh, and so I think people will kind of take some time to get to grips with this, is the, the new national procurement policy statement that's mentioned in the Green Paper. Um, can you give us some idea as to the thoughts behind that and, and sort of its status and, and what kind of role it's supposed to play in the procurement landscape going forward? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, it doesn't, as you say, it's separate from the green paper. So I'm I'm not working on the MPPS, but I can try to give you um, an idea of why it's come about. So it's distinct from the, the proposals in the green paper. Um, so the new rules, as will come out from the green paper, will set out the regulatory framework for public procurements. And the MPPS will detail the national strategic priorities that contracting authorities should seek to address so it's what they're trying to achieve through their procurement strategies rather than the how which is set out in the regulation so the strategy will require contracting authorities to take account of these priorities and having the statements separate from the regulations gives us more opportunity for them to be changed to reflect broader contextual shifts um, although they will still be required to undergo parliamentary scrutiny and it's not like it could be you know, changed overnight because the ministers decided they want something else in it, but it won't be as complicated as changing the regulations. And the statement also sets out, as you've probably seen, that contracting authorities need to assess their commercial capability in readiness for the wider reforms that we're um, setting out in the Green Paper and that will be enabled by the Procurement Reform Bill. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I mean, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But I think the the statement will be interesting and probably welcomed by our central government departments. I'm not too sure what our sub-central clients, such as local authorities and housing providers, will will think of that. Is it going to be digestible and accessible in terms of strategy for all contracting authorities in the UK? Or do you think that there will be a slight kind of central government bias to to the to the statement that that might be slightly jarring or, or difficult to digest for our our sub central uh, contracting authorities. 
Well, I would have thought in some ways, as I said, it's not within my my area of this, but I would have thought in some ways it would help local authorities. I mean, the um, the strategic priority of social value, for example, um, you know, will allow local authorities to prioritise creating new businesses in an area or new jobs or improving their supplier diversity or making sure that um, environmental aspects in their own region are, are covered. And I would have thought that a, a lot of the priorities that are set out in the MPPS will already be the priorities for those local authorities. No, good point. And uh, I suppose uh, the other thing you mentioned was the the um, upskilling agenda, really, that, that does come through um, very clearly in the Green Paper, um, that there is this acknowledgement that with the introduction of, of post-Brexit procurement rules, but, but generally in the sector, there is a, a need for upskilling and training. Um, what are your views? And it probably goes beyond the Green Paper again as to a sort of process of accreditation as far as public procurement's concerned? Well, as you say, it goes beyond the green paper. And we are obviously planning a very uh, comprehensive training and embedding programme, but we haven't really started to look yet at the detail of how that might manifest itself and what comes out of that process. So I think accreditation is probably something we're going to look at, but I couldn't say at the moment whether that's going to be taken forward or not. And I suppose, I mean, part of that training and I suppose it's getting used to a new vocabulary, isn't it? And and, and I keep on saying new landscape, but it seems to me a little odd when we're going for simplification that we're then going to maybe slash 320 regulations, but replace it with primary legislation, secondary legislation, policy procurement notes and an NPPS, uh, National um, Procurement Policy Statement. How simpler do you think our procurement rules are actually going to be? And do you think there's going to be any less in number? Well, I think that if we if we didn't consolidate the rules, I mean, we're talking about consolidating the four directors that we've got at the moment to one simplified set. I think if we didn't do that, we'd still need to have primary, secondary uh, legislation and guidance on all of those. So that would be even more than doing all those different levels. True, true. Yeah, <laughs> one set. Um, but I think it will greatly increase clarity and understanding for contracting authorities. I mean, my, my background's... Um, in the MOD and we work with two sets of regs we work with PCR and the DSPCR and I've managed teams where we have contracts with both and it is just a nightmare trying to get your head around what you can do on what contract and in my experience people often are on the side of the most restrictive rule as well they're sort of like well I know there's one that doesn't allow me to do that so I'm going to go with that one just to be safe in inverted commas and then that means that we lose a lot of the innovation and the flexibility that there is within the rules. Yeah, it's that leapfrogging between them. And I suppose you're right, whether it's a procurement officer's kind of particular characteristic or just uh, to err uh, on the side of being human, that we do tend to go for the, the more restrictive rule sometimes, even if you've got a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, there's also lots of differences between them that don't really need to exist, like the difference in, in framework contracts. It's four in the PCR and it's seven in DSPCR and it's eight in utilities. And, you know, there are sometimes reasons that those will be different, but not for the amount of discrepancies we have between them. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think we need to decide what we want, how we want to deal with a certain problem and then apply 
Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Tracy, because there are, for example, on concessions contracts, why we have a whole set of regs for those, where actually the test for those is that it has to be a public contract to start off with. So um, I, I agree that there are some obvious areas as to where we can consolidate and simplify. And, and talking about consolidating and simplifying, do you think the slashing of numbers of procedures will give contracting authorities the kind of desired level of of flexibility? Do you think it will make um, procurements faster? Um, Yeah, I mean, as you know, we're not proposing any timeline changes. I mean, those are set out in the the GPA mostly. But Mm. my hope is that if you give contracting authorities that flexibility you mentioned, if they can design a tailored approach to each procurement, then they're going to save time in those additional unnecessary steps that might be built into the regs at the moment that don't suit their procurement. And also in the discussions that people have, you know, you're often you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and it can take a lot of time to find ways to work around that. Um, so I don't think the processes themselves are going to be any quicker, but I think the way that people work within them and the opportunity to make a more bespoke process is going to speed it up by itself if that makes any sense no it does I suppose um, one comment that we've had back from our private sector clients and and actually this has been made quite a few times uh, bidding for contracts is their nervousness around the new competitive flexible procedure and the ability to bespoke it in a way that means you know, in any one sector, they may well be faced with a, a myriad of competitive, flexible procedures that they need to understand and get to grips with and, and timeline out, as it were. Um, was any consideration given to that sort of issue about kind of the proliferation of, of procedure? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a possibility. I think at the beginning, people are are going to tend towards. I think we're going to see a lot of restrictive procedures. We're going to see people copying what they do at the moment. And you're right; it might make it trickier for bidders to plan out how many resources they need to fit into a certain um, procedure. For example, I think there are things we're doing to lessen that burden on bidders during the process as well. I mean, the um, the tell us once process that we've got for submitting selection information at the beginning is going to save a lot of time. And I think that kind of square peg round hole bit works for bidders as well. I mean, often there are unnecessary points in processes at the moment. And if we can cut that out, even if there are lots of different types of procedures to deal with, they should be more suited to that procurement and help the bidders tell the story about their tender um, as part of that evaluation process. But it's really interesting what you say about the tell us once proposals, because I think it's probably the more ambitious side of the green paper, but the ones that will pay the most dividends in terms of simplification and lack of administration is the transparency proposals around the sort of evidence locker that you've referred to, but also the the supplier debarment list, if we can get that right. and. Uh, and the kind of baked-in transparency proposals. Um, but, of course, that's kind of a tightrope to, to, to navigate because, on the one hand, um, setting it up and kind of operating it, particularly the baked-in transparency proposals, could mean a lot more time, effort and cost for contracting authorities. 
But from the bidder's point of view, I could imagine that's going to be very attractive that they go to one place and they find all of the procurement information that they need under their own steam. Can you just talk us through some of those transparency kind of ideas and what that kind of tightrope or, or, or scales were that you were weighing up when creating them? Well, I think, yeah, you're totally right about the tightrope. It has to be a balance. And yes, we are getting pushback from authorities about the amount of transparency. I think the aim of this new system, if we can get it up as we propose, is to make a lot of that automated. So hopefully it won't be as much extra work for contracting authorities as they think at the moment when they look at their own systems and think, well, I'm going to have to publish this. It won't be about publishing something. It will be there automatically and it will be released, as it were. But um, yeah, the tightrope is is key. Um, contracting authorities have been asking us for more flexibility, and we think this is absolutely right um, in order to to make sure that we can get the value for money that we want. But there has to be a counterbalance to that, and transparency is that that counterbalance to the extra discretion that we're giving to contracting authorities. We need to be more open about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and that will help contracting authorities as well. All that extra information out there about surprise performance and and understanding a bit more about how they contract as well, I think will be really useful for everybody. Yes, a bit more illuminating. I suppose um, on the transparency side of things, there are obviously contracting authorities um, under the procurement regime that aren't subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So they're slightly worried that this is a way in uh, to kind of a backdoor to, to Freedom of Information Act obligations. Um, and then are you mapping around the transparency obligations what would otherwise be available to suppliers and when? I'm thinking about kind of pre-action disclosure, what they might ask for on a, a Regulation 86 letter, but, but also disclosure with a capital D in um, court proceedings. Um, is there going to be guidance as to... I suppose in contracting authorities' mind, and more importantly, what doesn't have to be disclosed? Yeah, so it it is all based around the limitations on the FOIA. So there will clearly be information that we don't want to release as a matter of course, and that will still be protected, um, the commercially confidential information. But also there will be circumstances and um, certain types of contracts where we won't be releasing that information as a matter of course, where you've got national security or or whatever involved in it. And yes, we are doing that mapping. We have some very complicated documents with trigger points that look at all the notices and and what needs to be released at that point and what happens with that information. So yes, that's all being being worked through at the moment frantically. No, I'm sure. Uh, And then with the, I mean, I suppose the proposals also depend on the success of a central government IT project and what could possibly go wrong there. But will there need to be sort of additional interfaces between contracting authorities um, systems and the central government ones around evidence lockers, debarment list? Um, Or or will this all just um, start and end with the um, open contracting data system? Well, we're not mandating that um, contracting authorities use the centralised system, but we're mandating that it can talk to the centralised system when that comes up. So um, everyone would still be free to develop their own IT systems. It will just need to push through that information into the central system. Oh, okay. Okay. And then in terms of Regulation 86 
letters and feedback. I mean, I, I suppose one of the assumptions made in the green paper is that that whole bit of the process has turned into a bit of an industry in itself. And uh, um, I tend to agree with that. And I, I'm not too sure it, it, it gives disappointed bidders all of the information that they'd require anyway without pushing further. Um, but um, are, are you... It, it reads at the moment under the green paper that you will then have put in place a level of transparency that allows suppliers to sort of pick their own feedback. Is that what you're really envisaging? Or do you think that contracting authorities will nevertheless have to provide a sort of summary sheet as to why someone won and why the others lost? Well, this is one of my own bugbears, actually. You know, you spend the whole evaluation process looking at a bid against the evaluation criteria. And, you know, you do that religiously in a stovepipe and you don't look at anything outside that evaluation criteria. And then you get to the end and then all of a sudden you need to do five or six separate letters that compare one bid to the winner. And it's just a completely different exercise. And it's fraught with issues because you don't want to put too little information in and you don't want to put too much information in and then I think it just ends up being a lot of work and as you say not really giving the bidders anything extra that they can use and the idea behind um, the proposal that we've got which links in with the transparency um, proposals we were just talking about is that bidders will get and we're still working out the detail of this so don't um, take this as gospel but the bidders will get um their kind of full evaluation report on their own bid and then they will be able to access the kind of FOIA type report on not just the winner but the other bidders as well so then you you've got that oversight of the relative advantages and the disadvantages that are required under the GPA but you've got a fuller report on your own your own bid okay so that's really interesting because actually i mean it, as i've said some of our clients aren't subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So this will be um, an additional new consideration that they're going to have to take into account throughout a procurement process. And, and I wonder if um, you'll get some some pushback on that. But um, We are going to be a lot clearer about what needs to be disclosed and when. Yeah. Well, and that's the same, you know, you're talking about the Regulation 86 report and what's disclosed if you, in the case of um, a legal challenge. And all that will be a lot clearer. And that's part of the... Um, trying to make the review system a bit more accessible and a bit quicker is setting out a lot of those things at the outset so that if you get into that situation, everybody knows exactly what they need to provide and when. No, that is good. And I suppose, tell me if I've misread this or not, but none of the Regulation 86 stuff will come into um, force until all of the transparency systems and the IT are up and running in any event. Yeah, that's a bit of a, a tricky thing at the moment because we're also looking at doing a lot of court reforms and there, there are a lot of linkages and interdependencies in the Green Paper, as you'd expect. You know, we're developing yeah, yeah. a list system here and not kind of attacking things piecemeal. And there are some things that will need to be in place before other things that can work. And that's a really that's a really good example of that. Now, just moving on to Chapter 7, which is, I know, your your baby, in terms of remedies and sort of resolving procurement disputes. I mean, I suppose I ought to pick up on one of your assumptions, first of all, which I disagree with, which is that people, due to the lack of transparency or frustration that they can't get at the information, launch spurious claims. Because I think if you 
spoke to Lucy James, our head of procurement litigation here. She'd say that none of the claims she's ever lodged for an aggrieved bidder would have ever been spurious. So, um, but I think <laughs> part of the assumptions that you've made are that access to justice on a procurement claim is is slow, it's expensive, and and maybe it's not that effective, which of course is what the GPA um, uh, require us to um, to put in place. Um, but there isn't any place for a tribunal in the Green Paper. Has that completely been put out to um, pasture now? Or, or could we see something uh, coming through in the draft legislation or, or further consultation on that? Well, it's not been completely written off in the Green Paper, but we are still looking into using a tribunal for certain types of challenges. But it's something we're investigating rather than something that we're, we're saying we're definitely going to take forward. Um, and if I, I take you back a bit, so when we did our initial engagement, um, which started about 18 months or so ago, a lot of people indicated to us that they, they wanted a tribunal, an bespoke procurement tribunal. And it's probably because we see this used to great effect in many EU countries. I think 16 of the member states use it. And a lot of them have um, fixed time periods of like 30 days for um, interim decisions, which looks great. So we started looking into this, but we'd soon discovered there were many limitations to doing this within the English judicial system. So we um, came up against difficulties with imposing fixed timelines, for example, or introducing procurement specific rules. And once we started to chip away at a few of those, we thought, well, actually, are we going to meet the objectives of a, of a quicker and more accessible system through this approach? If we can't guarantee that something will be done within a certain time, are we any better off than we are with the court system that we've got at the moment? So we we do think it's worthwhile making changes to the court process to see if we can deliver these objectives through streamlining what they do at the moment without the risk, the cost and the time involved in setting up a new process that we can't be certain is going to achieve those objectives either. Um, so we, as a, back to throwing the baby out with the bathwater again, we don't want to do away with the court and then end up with something that looks very much the same, but it's cost us a lot of time and money to set up. Um, but as I said, we are still looking into it for certain types of claims. So no, it hasn't been completely written off. Mm. That's paragraphs 201 and 202 of the Green Paper. <laughs> We're really lucky that the that the courts are really open to reform as well, and we've had a few conversations with the head judge of the TCC, and she's come up with her own proposals for change. So we're really positive that the that the things we're looking at in that area can make a real difference. Yeah, and there are benefits of going through the court. I mean, it's not completely unfit for purpose in terms of rigor that cross examination and witness statements bring you. So. And just a, a, a kind of just a, a segue into actually back to is it chapter one or chapter two when we talk about a procurement oversight unit? How would that work in terms of pre-contract remedies, or or is it just a kind of a mystery shopper with roller skates on it? <laughs> Maybe I should call it that. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, in terms of pre-contractor remedies, no. The idea of the the oversight unit is more about it's not about giving an individual supplier a remedy on an individual procurement, which is what the courts do at the moment. And it's more about systemic issues um, or issues that might not have caused you to lose the contract, but 
they're not quite in line with the rules. So, you know, you might have concerns about how specifications are written, for example, in a particular authority or the way in which they use framework contracts. Um, but if they do this as a matter of course, then it's something that you, well, you could even raise it to the oversight body for um, on one procurement, but then they'd be looking at, at patterns um, for intervention. So they'd, they'd be more looking at capability across the piece and saying, well, okay, well, we're getting a lot of reports from contracting authority X in terms of the way they write their specifications. So we need to go in there and check that they're happy with how they do that and look at how we can help them to to improve it, make recommendations for improvement and see yeah. if come into force. And given that aim and kind of objective, would you need to have a particular um, standing to bring those sort of reports to... to at the attention of the of the unit or or would it be only from a, aggrieved bidders or otherwise no we're looking at, at wider standing i mean there is a, a question on um volume um and what the oversight unit looks like and how many people it's resourced with um so there is going to have to be some way of limiting um what they get and how much they deal with of what they get but the idea is that with all this extra transparency we want to get civil society involved as well in looking at public procurement and I don't think anyone would disagree that it's been in the news more recently than it has been at any time in living memory. Um, and people are more interested in in how money gets spent on government procurement. And I think they will be looking more at the data that comes out of our new transparency proposals. And I think mm. it's right that if they spot something that indicates that there is an issue, that they should be able to raise that. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. So so in the dying minutes, and you know I could talk to you for hours, Tracy, but um time scales uh, what kind of timetable are you you working to when can we see kind of the primary legislation being being published for uh, consultation um we've not published any time scales yet but it's going to be a long time before we see the regulations actually come into force and part of that is the the training and embedding process that we were talking about earlier we want to do this properly and make sure that everybody's fully equipped to deal with the new regulations and make the most of them when they come in. And that's going to take a decent amount of time. So um, I'd say we're not looking at anything in the next year, at least. So there'll be a sort of transition period where we know what's coming down the line and people will be encouraged to sort of train and upskill in order to deal with those as and when they come in, which is presumably, you know, it's very different from what we had under the old EU regs where okay we were only copying them out but the guidance came out on the day that the the regulations came into force I suppose yeah I mean I had I think I had a two-hour session in a meeting room on on the new regulations and that was it this is going to be a lot more fundamental than I mean the changes that we're making are a lot bolder to coin a phrase um and fairly fundamental in some places and we need to give people the time to to get up to speed with that, especially because, as we've said already, we're giving contracting authorities a lot more flexibility here um, to use their discretion and their skill to come up with the right outcome. And we need to make sure that they they have that skill to be able to do that. Yeah. And I suppose just finally, I mean, the government commercial function will know what they need. Um, is it worth in our consultation responses, putting some ideas as to the type and format and I suppose, depth that, you know, our different types of clients, sub-central government clients uh, would want to see coming out um, of Cabinet Office as well? 
yeah, I mean, put as much in your consultation response as you want. <laughs> we want really full responses. So please, yeah, put as much in as you want. And we're not just looking at contracting authorities either. They are not the only people who are going to need training on this new system. We need to be looking at suppliers and bidders as well and making sure that everybody's ready for this big change. Well, that's a fantastic point to end on, Tracy. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. And um, we look forward to seeing what, what comes out next on the Green Paper. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.